Chapter Twenty Five of Judge Burnham's Daughters. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Judge Burnham's Daughters by Pansy. Chapter Twenty Five. A Waiting Worker. Yet in the days that immediately followed, had Mrs. Burnham been questioned in regard to her hopes for her husband's change of views, she would have admitted that they were never at a lower ebb. Even as regarded his acquiescence in or endurance of almost any form of active Christian work for herself, she was almost hopeless. The question that seemed pressing for decision was, how far must she allow deference for his opinions to hold her passive? Meantime he grew, if possible, more gloomily unreconciled to the quiet of the house, and it seemed to his wife that they could not even take an evening walk without meeting something that added to the bitterness of his unrest. They were lingering together in the park just as twilight was falling. The walk had been of her proposing, and was one of her many devices for drawing him, if possible, away from some brooding care or anxiety. She could not be sure of what nature it was, and while she suspected that it might have to do with his daughter Minta, she did not dare to question. Her sole hope was to rest him from the burden for a while. He had consented, half apathetically, to the walk, only stipulating, somewhat sharply, that Erskine should not be of the company, declaring himself to be in no mood for a child's incessant questionings. So Erskine, to his great grief, had been left at home, and the two had wandered aimlessly through the park, on whose beauty the touch of another autumn was already beginning to settle. Ruth had left her husband's side and gone forward a few steps, to examine more closely some gay foliage plants about a fountain, when she saw, on the opposite side of the driveway, two familiar forms. It took but a glance to recognize Mr. Satterley, but the lady she had to study carefully before she could be sure that it was Estelle Hollister. Younger she looked, and prettier, than Mrs. Burnham had ever seen her before. And as she listened to what her companion was saying, the soft pink flush on her face could be distinctly seen. At that moment the two turned suddenly and met her eyes. Both faces flushed, and, as if by common consent, they stood quite still in the walk. Ruth bowed cordially, and then Mr. Satterley seemed to recover himself, and, bowing low in reply, moved on. It was but a moment afterwards that, rising up from the shrub over which she had bent, Mrs. Burnham saw that the girl had broken away from her companion and was coming toward her. She was evidently in the habit of being as simply direct in what she had to say, as was Ruth herself. She began at once, without waiting to reply to the cordial good evening that accompanied Ruth's outstretched hand. "'Mrs. Burnham, do you think it wrong for me to be taking a walk with him? He asked me to come out here where it was quiet, and where he could talk with me undisturbed. He has not forgotten. We have neither of us forgotten. There are some things, you know, that people cannot forget. But he says she asked him to talk with me, and tell me some things that she wanted me to understand, and I promised her to, to forgive him, you know. Mrs. Burnham could hardly forbear a smile. It was a duty which the poor little thing was so manifestly willing to perform yet she was so consciously desirous of doing only the right thing, and of paying the utmost deference and respect to the memory of the one who was gone. She hastened to speak her assurance. 
My dear girl, why should it be wrong, unless indeed you are wronging yourself? Miss Burnham has gone where none of these things can touch her any more. I should think there would be no impropriety in Mr. Satterley's carrying out her wish in regard to seeing you. But if you would really like my advice for yourself, if I were you, I would go home to my mother without delay, and be guided by her as to anything in the future. You owe it to her and to yourself. I mean to, said Estelle with half a smile and wholly a sob. Good-bye, and thank you. Meantime, Mr. Satterley had joined Judge Burnham, and the two had been speaking together, apparently of matters about which both were indifferent. He acknowledged Mrs. Burnham's coming toward them only by another low, grave bow, and immediately turned away. Judge Burnham did not speak a word for the next five minutes. Then he said, in a voice which seemed to have taken on an added tinge of bitterness, it seems to me Satterley has sought and found consolation very early for one who was so nearly broken-hearted as he. They are friends of long standing, Ruth said, simply and gently. There was no need now to say more. The grave had closed over all necessity for revealing that chapter which would be only an added sting to the father's heart. Ruth smiled to think that she could be loyal to both husband and daughter and do no harm and as they walked on in silence, in the gathering darkness, it almost seemed to her that she could hear again that singularly flute-like voice, and once more it said, Mama, thank you. Their next encounter was a business friend of Judge Burnham's, and an important business conference must needs be held then and there. And as Ruth stood aside and waited, there came to her presently a bit of life that was all her own. A plainly dressed young man, who looked as though he might be a mechanic, but who lifted his hat to her with an air of a gentleman, stopped before her on the pathway. "'I beg your pardon, Mrs. Burnham, for speaking to you. You do not know me, I suppose, yet I know you so well, and have so much for which to thank you, that it seemed to me I could not let this opportunity pass.' The twilight had fallen very fast, the face before her was but dimly defined. Ruth's first impulse was to draw back and step quickly to her husband's side, but he was close at hand. What was there to fear? Why not learn what the man meant? I think you must be mistaken in the person, she said with gentle dignity. I am sure you have no occasion to give me thanks. Indeed I have. I ask God daily to bless you forever. But for you... I shudder to think what the next step would have been. A sudden sweet memory came to Ruth. You are that young man to whom I spoke that Sunday? She said, hesitating, throwing both hope and doubt into her voice. I am that young man to whom you, on that never-to-be-forgotten Sunday, made plain as daylight the way to eternal life. I thought you ought to know that I kept my promise to go straight to the Lord Jesus and claim his help and I got it, bless his name. I belong to him now in life and death. Was ever sweeter music than this offered to a Christian's ears? There were only a few more words after that. Inquiries as to the young man's plans and prospects. He was doing well. He had found already that to be a servant of the Lord meant more than a hope of heaven. It meant very much for this life also. He said this with a smile which she could feel rather than see, 
it sounded in his voice. Then he had thanked her again, strong, hearty words, and had told her that he knew she must be going on with her work. He felt sure God had called her to the saving of young men who were, like himself, almost lost. Only a few minutes, but when she turned, Judge Burnham was alone, was waiting for her, and it did not need the firm grasp with which he drew her hand through his arm to tell her that he must have overheard the last words and was annoyed. "'You seem to have acquaintances of all sorts,' he said haughtily, "'and to be fated to meet them to-night. "'Let us get out of this park as soon as possible. "'Pray, who was that young fellow who presumes to speak to you so familiarly?' "'He was not familiar, Judge Burnham. "'Nothing could have been more deferential than his tone. "'He is a young man whom I met at the gospel meeting.' "'I thought you did not attend those meetings.' I have not since that one Sunday, which you must remember. Oh, and this was the tobacco-smelling fellow with whom you were kind enough to talk. If he has not improved in his habits, it is well we were surrounded by so much fresh air. He has improved. He is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I am glad over it, with a gladness which I wish you could understand. Thank you for all kind wishes and I presume it is hardly necessary to remind you again that I will not, on any account, have you meet familiarly with those people, nor allow your name to be associated with theirs. And Mrs. Burnham went home from her walk more hopeless, in regard to some things, than she had been before, but more sure than ever that she must decide, and speedily, as to her next most. And then, suddenly, unexpectedly, Judge Burnham went away again. Another member of the firm was to go, but sickness detained him, and the business was important and complicated and tedious. It involved much travel and long delays, and Ruth was left more utterly alone than ever before in her life. There were no young ladies this time to almost bewilder her with their comings and goings. There were no sounds of gay society life in the great silent house. Even Mr. Satterley was not there to make occasional calls out of respect to the family tie which had once existed. He was going to New York on business, which might detain him for some time, so he told her when he called to say good-bye, and Mrs. Burnham, who knew that Estelle Hollister had gone home, wondered as to the nature of the business, and was somewhat anxious and silent. It made her smile, and yet almost humiliated her, to find that even Mr. Satterley was missed. There was a painful sense of not belonging to anybody, which sat heavily upon this lonely woman. As often as she wandered through the lonely halls of her handsome house, she wondered what could be done with it. Since society had shrouded it in crape and passed it by, to what use could those large silent rooms be put, which would reflect honor on the one to whom all hers was consecrated? Ah, therein lay the secret of the difficulty. She must say, Our rooms. If only she could say, All ours is consecrated, how plainly would the answer to this painful riddle glow before her. She knew a dozen beautiful things which might be done with cultured, consecrated homes. Did she not know all about Flossy Shipley Roberts and the green room and all the schemes to which it was consecrated? This was certainly her most and though she clung to her one weapon, the power of prayer, and though she daily, even as Erskine had said, talked with God about this, 
kept it before him that it was this which she wanted most, yet certainly her heart was very heavy and her faith was weak. Her husband had gone before there had been time for that long talk with him which she had planned. She had meant to say, in all gentleness and yet in plainness, that the time had certainly come when she could no longer fold her hands in graceful idleness to please his tastes. She must find her appointed niche in the Lord's great workshop and do her part. She had meant to ask, very humbly, what there was that he was willing to have her undertake. She would like to go to that woman's gospel meeting. It was there the Lord had met her and told her what to say for him, and she felt that she could do such work as this again. But if for any reason he shrank from that particular form of work, and was yet willing that she should undertake some other that would be honest work, she would not press her wishes against his will. Only this must be understood. She was bound by command and covenant to work in some direction, and felt that she could wait no longer. Even while she thought it out, what she should say and what he might possibly reply, and if so, what she could answer, there came to her that same sad memory over which she winced as in mortal pain. Her husband might say to her, if he understood these things well enough to use their language, The Lord gave you work to do. He placed two young girls in your special care, gave you all the appliances with which to work, and bade you shape and mold and train them for himself, and you failed him. To one of them he reached out loving arms and snatched her from the perils of the life in which you had started her feet, and took her to himself. But the other, where is the other? There was no danger that Judge Burnham would speak any of these terrible truths to his wife, but there was also no need. Her own conscience knew how to press them home with tremendous power. Still, she was in earnest now, and she must not longer make the mistake of sitting idle, looming over the past, while present opportunities ran to waste. But there had been no time for that talk with her husband. He had been gone for several weeks, when Mrs. Stuart Bacon sent up her card one morning, with a penciled request that she might be seen if possible, as her business was urgent. "'I do not want to see her,' said Mrs. Burnham aloud and incautiously, rising from the low chair against which Erskine had leaned while he made careful attempts over the figures which had been set him to add. "'Why not, Mamma? said this wide-eyed questioner, who was not held to rigid rules during school hours, his mother being his sole teacher. "'Because,' said Ruth, still speaking out her troubled thoughts, rather than addressing Erskine, "'she will want me to do what I cannot.' "'Don't you know how, Mamma? "'Oh, yes,' with a half-smile on her face over the question, while she lingered to arrange her dress." I may know how to do it, but there are other difficulties in the way. Don't you think it ought to be done? Indeed I do. This reply was given with energy. Erskine paused, pencil in hand, curly yellow head dropped a little on one side, and gravely considered this problem which was more puzzling to him than the column of figures. At last he reached a solution. Then, Mamma, I should think if it ought to be done, and you know how, that God would want you to do it. Whereupon the mother laughed again, albeit her eyelashes were moist, and kissed her young logician, and went down to Mrs. Bacon. But that lady, who was generally clear-brained and hurried, 
delayed the special reason for her call in a most trying way. She talked about the last Sabbath's meeting with earnestness, indeed, but forgot even to hint of the pleasure it would have been to have had Mrs. Burnham's help. She told a long story about a young girl whom she had taken into her family under circumstances of peculiar distress, and how deep was her interest in the matter, and how much there was in just such lines that needed doing. Under other circumstances, Ruth would have been deeply interested in the story. But it was at this time so manifestly being told to cover an embarrassment over something not yet reached, that to the listener it was simply irritating. When her caller, having exhausted the story, went back to the weather, waxing eloquent over the beauty of the morning, Ruth felt almost like saying that if her errand was really no more important than it appeared, she would like to be excused. And then at last Mrs. Bacon broke off in the midst of a statement that the air reminded her of a certain September morning in Italy, to say, But dear Mrs. Burnham, to tell you the truth, I did not come to you this morning to talk about the weather. I want to ask you to forgive me for what I earnestly hope is unnecessary interference on my part, and then to tell you plainly what I have heard. End of chapter 25 Recording by Tricia G.